would you do if you could do anything? Welcome to The Purpose Effect. I'm Elena. Join me for weekly conversations on purpose with women who have found it and are impacting their worlds with it. A lot of the stories that we tell, um, oh, and I say we, I don't just mean us at Double Vision, but, you know, the good storytellers in, in, the, in our industry, the mm-hmm. good stories are always something that resonates with you personally something that you find interesting um, that you can then put a piece of yourself into. I speak to women who are building businesses, have turned their passions or side hustles into careers, or have dedicated their lives in service of others. I hope that by collecting these stories, I can offer you tangible lessons on how to discover, build and grow purpose in your own lives. So let's get started. Today's guest is Min Lim, the head of production at Double Vision and the executive producer of shows such as View and HBO Asia's adaptation of The Bridge and the revival of the popular 90s Malaysian sitcom Kopitiam. Min is a longtime friend and colleague. We've known each other since we were kids, and it was Double Vision that gave me my first gig in the entertainment industry many, many years ago. We talk about what makes a good story how to be authentic when telling or producing stories that are not your own, and her newest project with a strong Asian woman right at its center, Gun Honey. Hi, Min. Hello. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for this chat. It feels uh, oddly formal for me to say welcome to The Purpose Effect and invite you on because we've known each other for so long. Far too long. Personally. Far too long, far too long, personally as well as professionally, and our friendship is not at all formal, so humor me. I will. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to start off with asking you my favorite question, and it's also the question I ask all of my guests on this show, and that is, what does purpose mean to you? Um, I mean, obviously there is a a definition that is in the dictionary. but, and so obviously I'm not going to go Google that now and tell you what it is. That would be a bad answer. Um, but for me, I think it's, it's just like having some kind of aim in life, you know, mm-hmm. having something that drives you and something that makes life meaningful. I mean, that's what it is to me. And have you found that thing for yourself? Um, I, I guess in my career, for sure. Um, I, I mean, I, I love what I do. I love the industry that we're in. I love the, the creative process. I find it incredibly fulfilling. I think if your mm-hmm. aim in life is to kind of live a happy and fulfilling life, then this obviously is one big part of it. So I think if, if you talk about, I think for, for overall in terms of a main purpose, I think really it's very simple. You know, I just want to have a happy and fulfilling life. And it's obviously easy to say, but I think it's very hard to achieve. But I'm trying. Yeah, I think it is. It's the same thing for everybody. We all want that, to have a happy and fulfilling life. And it sounds simple, but it's not It's not easy. I think it's also helpful to realize that life is a process, right? Life is a verb. And you might it's not always going to be wonderful. There will be pockets of happiness in it. There's also going to be periods of stress absolutely, or struggle. Absolutely. I think, I think happiness is something that you have to fight for. I don't think happiness is something that is given to you. 
you know, I mean, yes, there are moments in life and, and, and there are many things in life that kind of just fall on your lap, but those are good and bad. But I think if you want to be happy, then you, it really is about a mindset um, more than, than, than an achievement, if you know what I mean. Um, it, I, or, or I guess it's both, you know. It, it's, it's the desire to be happy and to do what is necessary to be happy. And sometimes that's hard. It's making difficult yeah difficult decisions and that at the time when you're making them you're obviously not happy they're stressing you out but you know eventually it's the right thing to do because eventually you will be happy yeah I agree with that and I also think it's particularly apt coming from you because you are one of the most you're definitely a pragmatist but you're a very optimistic pragmatist And I think if anyone was to say that happiness is something you actively have to go after and chase, it doesn't surprise me at all that that's coming from you. Aw, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you knew from a very young age that you wanted to work in entertainment and you wanted to work in television. But was there a moment where you knew that life was for you? And did that moment involve... Star Wars. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> how did all you, the moments involve Star Wars? How did you know that? <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I think look, when I first started, you know, obviously as a child, I, I don't think the automatic assumption or, or the, the types of jobs you look at when you're a child, you know, definitely film and television is not one of them. You know, I think yeah. I think when I was. I don't know, maybe in primary one or, you know, definitely in my early years, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, but then I quickly realized that I could not stand the sight of blood. So that just went out the window. Um, and I never really actually thought about it. I remember reading, I mean, I remember actually not reading. I remember um, writing, you know, in, in school, you have these creative writing um, assignments about your future and what you want to be. And it was always the standard answer, I feel it's very standard now, but I was always right. I would like to follow in my father's footsteps. Um, and I didn't really know what that meant because I think at that age, I didn't really understand what he did. Right. I just, mm-hmm. you know, I just thought, okay, well he's in business. And so I want to be in business. Um, and it wasn't, I think until he brought home, I think I was maybe 11 when he brought home, and this is showing my age because he brought home the box set of the Star Wars trilogy on Laserdisc. Oh, Laserdiscs. Wow, we are showing our age. (laughs) And um, the movie actually went, each movie went across, I think, like usually movies would go across two sides. You have to flip the side in the middle. These movies went across three sides. Ooh, you know? And, and, And I think the minute I saw Star Wars, and we did all three movies. We kind of did all the all of them in one day. And he sat there and watched them with me, and I just kind of was enthralled and captivated. And I was like, "What is this?" You know, I'd never seen anything like that before. And bear in mind, I was watching it in kind of the mid to late eighties. Actually, no, I was watching it even eleven. I would have been in the early nineties. Early nineties. Early nineties. And so, and the, the movies, I think the last movie Jedi came out in 82. So the, by that time, the movies were at least 10 years old and, and the special effects and everything just, it's still, you know, it still stood up and it still held. And I was just 
like I was like, wow, you know, how how are these things made? And, I, and from then on, I was really fascinated um, uh, by the movies. And, 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 and I think a lot of that also had to do with my dad. I don't think, you know, my career choice in a way was by accident. Um, yeah. You know, he started Vision when he was younger than me, right? He quit his job and basically started up a television distribution business. And, and, and that was it, you know, because he was a movie buff, he loved movies, and he spotted an opportunity um, in Malaysia to, to, to kind of go into that business. Um, so he, we just, I just grew up watching a lot of movies. And we would watch all types, you know, from the classics and Ben-Hur and Cleopatra and Gone with the Wind all the way up to Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Back to the Future. And these were great movies. And I kept wanting to find out how they were made. I, I think I, I, I started to get curious and I think that's when I knew that I wanted to make them because, you know, I would buy, you know, Malaysia is the center of piracy, right? And so, you know, pirated DVDs, you can get them on any street corner and very cheaply. And my parents used to have mm-hmm. such an issue because I would spend money on original DVDs. The Chinese parent will be like, if you have a cheaper alternative, you should go for it. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, but... I would spend money on original DVDs because of the special features. And the special features yeah. were all about how the show was made. And I would watch them. I would watch them religiously. In fact, I, by the time I got the DVD, I already seen the movie. So I didn't actually need, need to see the movie again. It really was about, you know, finding out how it was made. And so I think that's when, when I knew. Um, yeah. And I actually still, today, if, you know, you've been to my house... Um, and you yeah. can still, and you will see a bookshelf with lots and lots of books and a DVD shelf with lots and lots of DVDs. Um, and I guarantee you that most people who work in our industry, 99% will, are the same. We love to read. Yeah. We just love, we love stories, whatever they may yeah. be. Right. And so yeah. we just love consuming stories. And in, in, in a weird way, I think we're, we're all dreamers. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, that's the thing for me is the story, the storytelling. And I think what I've realized now, particularly as I'm doing this, is the medium for that story has become less important to me, particularly with so many different mediums now available for the consumption of stories. The medium doesn't matter. I'll, I'll watch or listen or read it all. What matters is the story. Completely. And but as a, as a company and as a group, we've always been really focused on the content space, right? Because that is the thing that, that persists. Um, in terms of the medium, the types of platform, how you consume, they change all the time. They change with technology, um, as we have seen over the last you know, decade or so, right? And they change drastically and they change at a really, and they're starting to change at a really fast rate. But if you sit in that mm-hmm. content space, people are always going to need content. People are always going to want stories. I think the challenge is because there is so much out there, how can you tell your story in, in a unique way? You know, in a way that captivates your audience, that cuts through kind of all the, you know, shit. Yeah, I agree. So on that note, what kind of stories appeal to you? And when you're in development or when you're looking to acquire a story or a format, what are you looking for? Um, I think it's kind of the million-dollar question, right, in, 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 in our industry. Um, and it, in, it's a good thing because I think a lot of, a lot of the stories that we tell, um, at, oh, and I say we, I don't just mean us at Double Vision, but 
you know, the good storytellers in, in, the, in our industry, the mm-hmm. good stories are always something that resonates with you personally, something mm-hmm. that you find interesting, um, that you can then put a piece of yourself into. Um, and I think those are the best stories. So if you read something and for some reason it tugs at your heartstrings or it evokes some kind of emotion in you, then that's definitely a story that's worth telling. You know, I think Mm -hmm. if I, I, and and I've read so much, right. Uh, So many things come across my desk. Um, and there are stories that you just don't care for that. You're just like, "Mm, yeah, you know, I read the first bits and, Somehow it doesn't grab me. And, and the problem with something like that is that there is no set formula. It, it really is about how you feel. And it could be a combination of things. It could be a combination of good writing. It could be a combination of how you're feeling that day. Are you feeling particularly nostalgic? Are you feeling particularly angry? Are you on your period? You know, there's many things that play, that play into it, right? But essentially, I feel that a good story should be able to evoke some kind of emotion in you. And for, yeah. for, for that to happen, it has to resonate very strongly with you, something about it. Yeah. And, you know, you said just then that there's no magic formula because that's often, I think, the question people want to know. How do you know that that's going to be a hit? But you never really know. And I think the fact that there there's so many ways to consume content these days. There's so many platforms. There's also so many different audiences mass audiences, micro audiences. So if the, that story is resonating with you, if you're feeling that pull, the likelihood is that you can make that work for an audience. You're not the only one who's going to feel that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, and I think that um, a large part to kind of, to making film and television isn't the story provides you with a very good base right? Um, mm-hmm. If the story is terrible, then you already know it's a, it's kind of a non-starter. But if you have a yeah. good story, actually, there's so many things that also then need to come together on top of that good story to make a good show. And so exactly. you can't disregard all of that. You, and, and that comes with experience, right? That comes with the experience of having mm-hmm. done shows, putting shows together, and also knowing which are the right people to put on a particular show. Because yeah. every show is different. The topics are different. Yeah. You know, the treatment is different. I mean, production is such, uh, you know, it's got so many moving parts. And for a good show, pretty much all of that has to come together right. Yeah. I mean, the magic is in the execution, right? Okay. So let's now talk a little bit about the space specifically in Asia and the stories that you're looking to produce for this region. What do you want to see more of in the TV space here in Asia? I'd like to see us push the boundaries a little bit more on the stories that we can tell. I think we are a, um, I mean, when, and when you say Asia, I think let's talk about Southeast Asia, right? Or even okay. specifically Malaysia, yeah. because every market is, is, is different. Um, and I think a lot of people kind of tend to look at them as kind of one market, but it's impossible. You know, it's impossible. Every yeah. market is different. And I think if you know, no one understands that better than Malaysians. We have an incredibly, yeah, that's true. We have a, an incredibly complex landscape. Yeah. 
um, as far as content is concerned. And so I think if I talk specifically about Malaysia and what I would like to see more, because, you know, Indonesia is having such a renaissance right now and they are, you know, they're ahead of us in leaps and bounds. Um, So if I talk specifically about Malaysia, I think the thing that I would like to see more is, is, is for producers to be able to push the boundaries um, on the types of stories that we can tell. I think we are a country that is very um, subjected to censorship because of the cultural sensitivities. Um, but that doesn't mean the stories that we want to tell doesn't don't exist or don't exist in real life. I think there are a lot of people who will find that their stories are not told. But because of the restrictions, we tend to kind of tell the same stories again and again, over and over. I mean, and restrictions that it doesn't just mean censorship, but also budget. And and so the kind of risk appetite uh, is, is, is really not there. But co- good content always requires a little bit of risk. Unfortunately, yeah. I think in the corporate space, and when I talk about corporate space, I just said corporate space in terms of the networks uh, and the commissioning mm-hmm. um, networks and the way that they are set up are not conducive to taking risks. You know, people yeah. are thinking about their bonus and their contracts, and they're usually quite short-term, right? Yeah. So I think what I would like is to see people kind of commission something that they know is a bit edgy, but then stand by it, you know, and because yeah. they, they believed in it. Um, and, and I think that's something that you don't see too much. And I think that risk aversion is a global thing, specifically in the context of representation of Asian voices and Asian stories in the in the international or the global uh, marketplace. There used to be this idea that those stories were niche or risky or, or not marketable, but movies like Crazy Rich Asians and uh, series like Warrior or Never Have I Ever have definitely shown that there is a market and there is money in those stories. Is this real representation or is this lip service? I think you have to look at, 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 at what they're trying to represent. I think yeah. um, the Asian experience is very different from the American Asian experience. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. I think if you look at Crazy Rich Asians, Crazy Rich Asians, I don't think was made for us. You know, I think if you... If Us you, as in Asians living in, in Asia. Southeast Asia. Yes. Yeah. Even though it is a Southeast Asian story. Um, yeah. It's set in Southeast Asia. Um, but the way that it was portrayed... Um, a, I think the, the real Crazy Rich Asians will tell you it wasn't crazy enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, but B, I think if, if you look at, at, at kind of what they did in the show... Um, and you only have to look at who they cast in the lead. I think it's awesome that someone from Malaysia got the opportunity, right? But Henry Golding isn't Chinese, and the character yeah. was Chinese. Henry Golding doesn't look Chinese. He, he certainly um, has Asian heritage. I think his mom is Iban, um, and his yeah. dad is English. Was that real representation? I'm not sure that it was. Did they pick someone yeah. who perhaps served um, a purpose for them in the West, perhaps. Um, But I think that there were also a lot of other choices within Asia itself. 
Yeah. Right. And if you look at the way they told the story and the way and what they were trying to represent, I mean, um, and I know a lot of it did also come from the book and being faithful to the book. But if you look mm-hmm. at the scene in which um, they go to his grandmother's house for the kind of flower blooming ceremony, I think a lot of Malaysians and, and, and Southeast Asians were looking at this at, at, at that scene saying, who the hell wears black tie to someone's house? It's so hot. You know, and it was outdoors. <laughs> yeah. Like, why are they sweating, right? You know. Yeah. Um, and and in an Asian house, you'd probably be made to take off your shoes before you get you get allowed in. Yeah. You know. Um. So, I don't think that film was particularly representative. However, I do think that it's very cool. Several, uh, pretty much, Asian, that Asian actors had that platform, right? Wherever yeah. they were from. And you have Malaysians and yeah. Singaporeans and, you know, Asians, you know, um, uh, um, British-born Asians and American-born uh, Asians who were in the film. And I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I think that's great. I also think what was very good about that that movie in particular is that aside from the actors and what the actors were or were not representing, it also engaged people working in film and television in Asia, like, the fact that they're coming and the fact that they're spending money in our industries is always a good thing. It's always a good thing for the support and the development of uh, of the local industries. Oh, completely. I agree okay. 100%. Um, okay, so let's talk about Warrior then. Okay, so Warrior, I mean, I like Warrior. And, and I think the story, if you go back, not not, not the actual story about Warrior, but, but where it came from is a really interesting one. Um, it, it, it was based off the writings of Bruce Lee. And he had, in the 70s, I think it was, taken it to um, some of the networks in the U.S. And this was also, you know, after he had been on TV himself, playing Cato in the Green Lantern. And he'd taken it yeah. around to some of the studios in the U.S. And it was about a story with, obviously, him in the lead, um, but a story about the, the, the tongs in San Francisco. And it really was mm-hmm. quite an American-Asian story in that sense. It was about the first kind of wave of immigrants coming across yeah. uh, to the United States. And he was told that no one would watch a show with the Chinese man in the lead. And not only did they reject him, they then ripped him off. Um, and that show became Kung, uh, Kung Fu with David Carradine. Right? And that show was a hit by and large, but if you look at it today in today's lens, it is incredibly. I don't know what the um, what the, the the Asian equivalent of blackface. But it was the Asian equivalent, right? David Carradine kind yeah. of spouting dialogue like a fortune cookie, um, yeah. and it was such a big hit, right? And so, Warrior is actually, um, you know, the producers. I think it's it's uh, Justin Lin. Um, working with the Bruce Lee Foundation and, and Shannon Lee to and, Shannon really, Lee and to really kind of do the story that Bruce Lee wanted. And I think that by and large, they've done, they've done a great job. You know, the way they've treated it, the way they've treated the language. Obviously, my one pet peeve is that, you know, they cast a Japanese guy in the lead, in the lead and he doesn't look remotely Chinese. <laughs> um, but otherwise, I think it's, it's, it's a great show. You know, it's fun and yeah. it's, it's and, and there is and some Mandarin in it. And they knew they wanted to make a show in English um, and they treated the language in a very interesting way. And they had, you know, like they did in the hunt for the red October where they had, you know, uh, characters speaking Chinese and then the camera angle would change and suddenly they would be speaking English, but then the audience would know that they were actually supposed to be speaking Chinese. I think that's kind of a nice nod. 
as opposed to having everything in English. Yeah, and the other thing I like about Warrior is that it specifically addresses the fact that while the show is set in, I think, the late 19th, early 20th century, um, so these characters are first and second generation Chinese immigrants in the show, but their descendants now would be fourth or maybe even fifth generation Chinese Americans. And they talk quite directly about the fact that no matter how long they stay in the U.S., because they are not white, they will never be considered American. And this is a perception and a bias that I think Asian Americans still face today, regardless of how long their ancestors have been living in America. Which is why I think Warrior is great, because it specifically, it talks about a specific Asian experience. Yeah. It talks about uh, the Asian immigrate, immigrant experience um, in the United States. It yeah. doesn't aim to cover all Asians, or it doesn't yeah. aim... It aims to cover a specific set of Asians and to talk about issues um, that uh, these this specific group was facing, were facing. Yeah. And I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. It's not just putting an Asian person in there to try and make this relevant for all Asians, which would be lip service, or trying to make one experience speak for everybody. Um, yeah, it's talking about a specific one. So now that you... So for the last couple of years, you've been working on trying to put together projects with investment either from um, U.S. studios or networks or U.K.-based studio networks. And I'm wondering whether some of these success stories are having an impact in the sense of translating to more investment or more interest in some of the projects that you're developing it, or maybe, you know, actually signatures on dotted lines. Oh, absolutely. I think I think diversity and, and authenticity are the buzzwords right now. Um, and mm-hmm. so people are, are looking for those types of projects. Not to say that... So let's ride that way. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I'm female, I'm Asian, and I'm a producer. Tick, tick, tick. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's it's a great time in that sense that people are open to, to content and shows in different languages, shows that are talking about experiences that are not necessarily familiar to a, to a Western audience. And, and I think that's great. Um, and, and it's been something that's been building up slowly. I do hope that it is not lip service and it doesn't seem to be, but I think also Mm -hmm. that, you know, um, and, 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 you know, I'm here in LA working on these specific projects, um, and I'm working with, with partners who really believe that we have something to bring to the table and who understand what it, it, it takes to, to actually do authenticity and diversity properly. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how much of, because the industry is so traditional and, and so many things are deep-rooted, I wonder how much of, of the Western industry really believes, um, believes it. Yeah. And, and that remains to be seen. Yeah, because it's one thing to say we need to do this because uh, it looks bad if our organization is not commissioning women, is not commissioning uh, diverse voices. And it's another thing for the heads of those studios and networks to really believe that those are the shows worth telling. Because let's face it, they may not be the audience for those shows. And there's always a bias towards commissioning something that you're going to watch. Absolutely. I think that a good show 
um, should be commissioned nonetheless. I will be the first one to say that I would happily lose out to a white guy, to whoever, if the show is good, you know, and, and, and there's a great story there to be told. No issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's when people play, and often in this, and to be fair, often in this industry, you have to play God. But yeah. to let your personal bias uh, dictate what you commission, I think, is, is, is a mistake. And it happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's talk about your new project, Gun Honey, specifically from the perspective of diversity and representation, because the way that project came together is very interesting. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Okay, so to kind of give you some context, um, I sit on the advisory board of a production company here called Pillar Segan, and Pillar Segan has been producing television for over 20 years now. Um, they produced, um, you know, um, Stephen King's The Dead Zone, um, Haven, they're currently on private practice, um, and they're a great company. Um, and, and, and so... Lloyd Segan, who is one of the founders of the company, sent me an email one day, and the subject matter, and he definitely knows how to pitch because the subject said, you may think I'm crazy, but dot, dot, dot. Who would not want to read that email? He And, and so, of course, I read the email immediately, and he had clued me on to this, so he, he was telling me about this, this, this graphic novel. So the story is like this. So he... Um, worked on a show called Haven, which was based on a Stephen King novel with an author out of New York uh, called Charles R. Dye. And Charles is an award-winning and Edgar and Seamus award-winning author. And he also is um, owns um, uh, and publishes a range or a series of uh, pulp fiction crime novels um, under the banner Hard Case Crimes that people like Stephen King mm-hmm. also write for. Um mm-hmm. And he had decided to write a graphic novel, his very first graphic novel. Um, and it was called Gun Honey. And it really, and then the central character was a girl called Joanna Tan. And in the comic, she is Singaporean born. She's a Singaporean born Chinese okay. girl who is what they call a gun honey. And this is the, she's a weapon specialist who will get your weapon anywhere that it needs to be. So like in The Godfather, ever wonder how the gun made it into the toilet? Well, most likely it was Joanna, you know? Um, and the interesting thing is that she never pulls the trigger, right? And so he said, look, Charles had, uh, Charles had come to Lloyd with, with this and said, do you think it would make a good TV show? And Lloyd, you know, in his grand wisdom, had this epiphany and said, I know exactly who would, who would be great to develop it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and sent it to me. And he said, look, you know, and... Um, and, and what I also found out later on was that the illustrator of the graphic novel is Malaysian. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's Malaysian and he comes from Ipoh, which is where our moms went to school. <laughs> All comes back to you, right? <laughs> and, and I was like, this is kismet, right? This is fate. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he said to me, look, in the email, he said, look, I think it may on the face of it, look exploitative this is an you know this is a this is the story of a southeast asian girl um who you know is kind of always in bikinis she's quite sexualized um but i think there is something at the core here which is a Mm -hmm. strong independent femme fatale asian female Mm -hmm. character and he said i think Mm -hmm. you guys would be great to develop that and i read it and i honestly he sent me three issues 
And I read them in one shot, and they were great. They were absolutely great. And I just like the idea of being able to properly develop a, a, a Southeast Asian um, uh, character, female character. And of course, you know, in the TV series, we're making her Malaysian. That was the first thing we did. And it, it's not to yeah. do with national pride, but more that you know, she w- she has a past, and she comes from some kind of crime family. And we said, look, no crime happens in Singapore. You've got to move it across the border. <laughs> It just is plain unbelievable, you know? Um, yeah. So in the TV show, we make her Malaysian. And so it was just really appealing to me because I think far too often, um, many people in the West and producers in the West have done shows about fem- Asian female characters. And I'm not sure that they've gotten them right. Um, you yeah. know, I think Mulan, the cartoon was really good and really fun but I, the live action didn't do well at all and and yeah. I was actually quite surprised to find that none of the rights none of the four writers that was listed um were of Asian descent or Asian um it just didn't feel and when we saw it it just didn't feel authentic something about it didn't feel authentic yeah. I think that's a key right is is that you need these cultural anchors and you can't develop a show and Lloyd knew that that you can't, he mm-hmm. couldn't develop a show about a, a Malaysian girl. He had no, yeah. he has no frame of reference for it. And he's, he's open and, and, and enough and aware enough to know that, which I, which is why I, which is what I love about Pilisigan is that they know that. And that they say to you, look, we want to make the show, but you take lead, right? Let's collaborate yeah. and make a really great show for a, for a global audience but you take the lead, you develop the characters, you tell us what works from your point of view, because that's what Mm -hmm. makes it authentic. And I think that's what we did with the bridge. And that's what made it so successful is that we were really, really adamant about getting representation in the room and the writer's room. Right. So if we were going to write, especially in season two, we were going to write a a show and that, that involved an Indonesian character. We wouldn't, we weren't going to do it without an Indonesian writer, you know, and so we had Malaysian writers, we had Singapore writers, we had Indonesian writers in the room, and it was great. And you had female writers in the room, and that was particularly important, of course, for the lead female character, Serena, who is a very complicated woman. Um, of course, Rebecca Lim, who played Serena, is an amazing actress, and she really brought her to life. But that was not without really strong writing to create a female character who was a real lead and who was more than just a plot device. And uh, there was no no stereotypes and no tropes there. No, and I think I think this is why if you look at um, audience audience feedback or people are split on the character. There's some people who love her and some people who don't like her because they she's not meant to be likable. In fact, mm-hmm. when you start the series. She rubs Magat up the wrong way and she rubs the entire audience up the wrong way. And that's the point, right? Because yeah. not everyone is likable in, in real life. Um, and and by, by the end, she has this redeeming, she has these redeeming qualities. Um, really, I mean, for me, you can't help but kind of fall in love with her because she's so weird, but she's so good at the same time. And she has this really kind of, her moral compass is is really quite straight, right? And so, so, and you see that, and you see her character evolve, and you see her character become more human, quote unquote. And I think that's a great, and that's a great process. 
it's great character. So I think it's she's one of my favorite characters actually that that of any show that we've done. Yeah, the team did such a good job of writing her, and Rebecca did such an amazing job of uh, bringing her to life. Because Rebecca, as an actor, is probably one of the best actors I, I, you have out there. She works really hard at her craft. In fact, if you watch her and Bron, they're very different in their styles. Bron is very instinctual, um, you know, turns up to set without a script, but somehow manages to deliver his lines. Rebecca works very hard, but is also so talented. And Rebecca... When she heard about the bridge, um, she was so excited to do it because she had never been given this kind of role ever. No one, everyone had cast her as the girl next door. No one had thought yes. to cast her in a role like this. And she loved it so but much. There weren't she, any roles like that. I may, think that's may, the whole maybe point. not, but I think there were bad girl roles and other roles like that, that that they could have cast her in, but they always kind of stereotyped her into a certain type of role and she wanted to do this so badly that she actually got her management to clear her out of another show and I for one could not be happy I could not I cannot see anybody else um for Serena you know other than uh, other than Rebecca yeah so I guess that is a reminder to you know everyone working in the industry that there is so much diversity not just in the roles well We've been talking specifically about Asian female characters, right? There's so much diversity in that experience. And there is so many more interesting characters that your audiences will fall in love with who are not one of these three main female tropes that we see, particularly in Western um, film and television about Asian women, but we see them in Asia as well, you know. I mean, I've seen dragon ladies in U.S. drama. I've seen them in Asian drama. Oh, I um, mean, we stereotype like I'm, there's no tomorrow. Yeah, we still do the stereotypes, <laughs> yes. but it's, it's good that we're seeing so much more. And I think that's really, you know, in Asia, we tend to go to the stereotypes because we write story and not characters, you know, and I think that's and that's obviously, I won't get into that, but that's due to a whole host of reasons, right? Yeah. But I think if you start with the character and if you have the story that comes from the character, then that becomes so much more interesting. Your characters become so much more interesting because they're not just a plot device. They don't yeah. just do what the plot requires of them. They're actually real people um, and, and, and people that you can see yourself in. And I think that's the important point yeah. is to make those characters somehow relatable. Like they always say about a good villain, right? It's, it's yeah. why, why, you know, it's, it's, it's really because this guy really believes that what he is doing is for the good of something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and that's why villains are so interesting to write. They're challenging, but interesting. Yeah. Right. So I think we and just. They're also, uh, they're also, it's also why we fall in love with particular villains right like Moriarty oh absolutely or even Villanelle yeah you know in Killing Eve definitely Villanelle yeah you know I mean she's nuts um but somehow you just kind of you like her she's so complex and she's so nuts you know but she's such an interesting character so besides watching a lot of uh television and film content what do you do to exercise your creative muscle 
Um, I think I read. I love books. Um, so I read a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, today you're not on planes too much. Um, but when I used to be on planes a lot, I would never watch anything on planes, but I would actually read um, on planes. Uh, but I also think that uh, creativity comes from the different experiences that you have in life. I really believe that. Mm-hmm. You know, being yeah. open to different things, seeing how different people live their lives because everybody's life is different, you know? So I really like, and you know, I'm, I'm a social person and, and connect social connections yeah. drive me, but also I feel that when I go out there and I interact with different people um, from, you know, so many different walks of life, you kind of get inspiration for, for things, you know? Um, and so that's, that's really what I try, what I try and do is just go out there and have as many experiences as I, as I can. Mm, and meet as many people. Yeah. And, and it's fun. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So if you were to go back in time and give a piece of, of advice to the much littler men, I know you're very little, but let's imagine the, the really teeny tiny men wearing the Darth Vader costume. What would you well, tell oh, the, them? The older men still wears the Darth Vader costume. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, oh, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. There are so many things I would tell myself. Um, you know, don't don't like that boy because he doesn't like you back. <laughs> um, well, also, you know, don't fall off the chairlift. Yes. Oh, God. Yeah. It really is. I Okay. So to be honest, I wasn't going to bring up the chairlift experience, but... <laughs> It really did teach me an important life lesson. So, you know, obviously you know the story, but to cut long stories short, I essentially fell off a chairlift. I fell 40 feet, which is four stories, um, Mm -hmm. off a chairlift, landed on hard-packed snow, and did not break a single bone in my body, but had hairline fractures on my spine. Um, And I was 11. Actually, it was Christmas Eve just before my 11th birthday, so I was 10. Um, Mm -hmm. but what that really taught me, and I didn't know that at the time, but as I grew older, it really sunk in is that, you know, your life can go, you can go anytime, your life can end anytime. And so you need to really, if you want to do something, go do it. If you want to say something, say it because life is too short for any kinds of regrets. And mine could have possibly ended when I was 11 and I wouldn't have done all these things. And I think that that's how I kind of live my life. And so, you know, I figured that out in the end, but it's definitely something that I would sitting here today, go back and tell myself, you know, yeah. is that anytime you're scared to do something or you say, Oh, you know, I'll wait and see, don't wait and see, you know, go, go do it because it's going to lead you down a path, good or bad. And then yes, you'll have to deal with it, but Hey, that's life, you know? Yeah. Um, so just, just try because you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Yes, that's true. And I think what is most important about that message coming from you is that you do live it. You're not just saying this, this wasn't something that you repeated from a movie you watched. I know you and you do live that every day. And it's one of the things I admire most about you. I try. Thank you. But I also do take naps when I want to take them. And then that makes me not very productive. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not talking 
talking about productivity. We're not talking about productivity. <laughs> it Let's does not make, confuse action with productivity. True. It does make me happy to take naps and to eat donuts and to do all these things that are probably not good for you. But it does make me happy. So hey, you know what the hell. Yeah. Well, for every donut you're eating, babe, I'm drinking two glasses of wine, and I probably shouldn't be doing that either. What a good combo we make. <laughs> okay. So just to wrap up, what's next for you? Um, I think, you know, we COVID's hit us really hard. Let's not be. Um, it's hit everybody hard, our industry specifically, because we've just not been able to produce. And, and, and you know, our industry is such a gig economy. Mm-hmm. that many people just could not put food on the table. And I think that's been really tough for a lot of people. Um, but I think what I look forward to is when things open back up again, and we've been working on, on, on you know, stuff, and we've been developing stuff in the meantime, is, is trying to get some of the projects that, that I've been working on for years, right? Years. I think mm-hmm. what a lot of people don't realize when something hits, gets released, a show gets released, is how long people have been working on them. I think the bridge yeah. got released very quickly and took the world by storm or well, Asia by storm. Um, but what a lot of people didn't realize is that I had been, Sharon and I actually, not just me, but Sharon and I have been working on it for like two years before that. It took, took us two years to get it off the ground. And, and with Gun Honey, Gun Honey is one of those projects that is, is really close to my heart because I want to be telling stories about, a, about Asia with Asian characters, but in a really authentic way you know, but whatever it is that we're telling, um, we just want it to be a good story, you know, we, and we want it to be able to be seen by a global audience because a lot of things mm-hmm. get made in Asia, um, and, but they're only for a local audience and they hardly make it out of the country, let alone the region, especially in the case of Malaysia yeah. where the budgets are so small. But with yeah. the projects that we've got coming up, um, they're all being developed for a global audience, um, Gun Honey mm-hmm. being on the top of that list. And so I'm really excited at the prospect of that, of being able to work on that um, and being able to, you know, and finally for people to realize where Malaysia is on the map because some people don't. <laughs> I mean, I was actually, yeah. I was actually at, like, at lunch with somebody the other day who asked me geographically where we were on the map. I kid you not. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. And this is L.A. where, you know, everybody you would think would be a little bit more worldly. You would think. <laughs> But it was it yeah. was fun and educating nonetheless. But anyway, um, I'm I would I'm very excited at the prospect of, of of being able to do these things. Yeah, well, I'm really looking forward to seeing all of these things when they do come, and I'm looking forward to all of the conversations we're going to have about these projects moving forward. So thank, thank, you, thank you so much. This was fun, and I'm now and I'm now going to go treat yeah. myself to a donut. Yeah, and a nap. <laughs> and a nap. That's right. Yeah, do it. Do it. Amen. Getting through life, one donut at a time. Goals. That's it from me. Don't forget to follow this podcast on Spotify or subscribe if you are listening on Apple Podcasts. And I'll be back next week. Bye.